Hello there and welcome to this very special episode of An Irish Man Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. Well, Nicola Talent is an award-winning Irish crime journalist, writer and podcaster behind such books as Clash of the Clans, Flesh and Blood, The Witness, uh, which is an extraordinary piece of work that I really recommend. It tells the tragic story of Joey the Lips O'Callaghan. She has made it her life's work to report on Ireland's most violent criminals, drug gangs and the wider issues of criminalities facing Ireland today. And when you read or listen to her podcast, it's just so easy to see why she is the three time and current holder of the Irish Crime Journalist of the Year title. In this conversation, I had the chance to ask about the current state of Ireland, something that us abroad really worry about a lot of the time because it's very hard to gauge what is going on back home. We talk a bit about the drug epidemic that's fueling these crime gangs, her introduction to crime journalism and why she's never scared. Of course, in the Patreon extended cut, there's even more. We have the space and time over there to talk about the newer crime bosses such as Mr. Flashy and what makes them different. We talk about verifiable truths and how her instinct when looking in the eyes of a source is something that she's forced to rely upon again and again and again. And there's also a lot more over there for young journalists who are looking to maybe go down this path. The second half of this podcast is something else. And of course, you can join the conversation afterwards where we discuss the episode after the post goes up. I want to say a massive thanks to everybody who has come over to Patreon in the past while. Uh, For May, I'm offering a very special 15% discount on annual membership. So if you've been hesitant in the past, we've got a 15% discount for you for the month of May. Uh, It won't last for long. So please come on over, support the show become a patron of Irishman Abroad this week. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy this, the Nicola Talent episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Nicola Talent, thank you so much for doing the Irish Man Abroad podcast. I've wanted to talk to you for so long, but weirdly, it it feels like the absolutely perfect time to have you on. When so many of us away from home look back, we wonder what the hell is going on. Now, I left in 2013. Maybe you could tell me before we go anywhere with this conversation about your life and your your entrance into this world. What what would you say has happened in that 10 year period? Well, when it comes to, I suppose, the world of drugs 
and crime. What's happened in that 10 year period is probably what's happened in the 10 year period previous, which is largely and unfortunately that the demand for drugs, in particular cocaine, has just gone through the roof. So when you left in 2013, things were starting to get better a bit, I think, Mm. Uh, from memory. We'd had a few hard years with uh, the recession and, you know, a lot of people lost a lot of money in property and the construction industry was very much struggling. And previous to that, previous to 2007, 2008, I think a lot of the kind of the money that people had in Ireland was fueling that cocaine boom. And yeah, around 2013, that was starting to come back and it's just grown and grown and grown. And with that, every hundred euro that somebody spends every weekend, you know, to buy a few lines of cocaine while they're out enjoying themselves, that has gone straight into the pocket of the likes of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group and has made them incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. And as we saw in the last couple of weeks, significant enough for the US authorities uh, and the power of the, the United States to come in and sanction them. Which is so huge. <laughs> I mean, just before we came on, you described it as being like chemotherapy uh, mm. for cancer. Uh, you think it's the ideal uh, approach or certainly better than the alternatives. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly intelligent approach to policing Nobody is ever going to stamp out organised crime or, you know, drug dealing or anything like that. I don't think anybody's under illusion that you could live in a country where none of that exists. But I think the Kinahan Organised Crime Group had just always remained one step ahead of the law. That may sound cliched, but, you know, they migrated from these shores at the turn of the century in 2000 and went out to Spain where they grew, first of all, and really for the first 10, 15 years out there, out of arm's reach of the Irish police, really. You know, Europe had opened up its borders, but it took law enforcement a while to start working proactively together. And I think a lot of the drug gangs got ahead because of that. You know, they were there was free flow of people mm. and trade, but the various police forces weren't properly sharing their intelligence against who they were. So if they kept on the move and, you know, kept houses in various different countries that kept them ahead. And, you know, then they subsequently in in 2016 went out of reach of Europe into the United Arab Emirates, where they continued to grow. And at that point, they had um, they had joined really with other mafias in Europe to become what the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency in the US called the European Super Cartel. So it's a little bit like European narcos, if you've watched narcos and sometimes those um, gangs come together and become very powerful and work together and join the resources. And that's really what they did. And they've been directing and it's been said now they've been directing murder and, um, you know, pumping drugs and weapons into Europe, the UK and Ireland from their very privileged base in Dubai where they live like kings and indeed where Daniel Kinahan is very pally with a member of the royal family, such as his influence. I mean, that I have so many questions, but what you just mentioned there might answer my next question, which Mm. is why the UAE has tolerated his presence there for so long. 
I've done shows out in Dubai where, you know, if somebody raised their voice or got in an argument with their partner at the back of the gig, they could be put in prison and have their assets frozen for something mm. as simple as that. I remember one comedian on stage using the F word too much and, you know, the guards on the balcony getting uneasy. Oh, How God. in the name of God was this allowed, this man allowed to be there under the noses of the authorities for so long? I'd be like a nervous wreck if I was you over there, but um, <laughs> well, um, fun. no, well, actually, that's exactly why we don't have an extradition treaty with the UAE, because like as a democratic society, we wouldn't agree to that kind of law enforcement, you know, so we can't have a extradition treaty with a country whose laws are so out of sync with ours. Look, the Emirates have Dubai is a melting pot of of organised crime. There's criminals from all over the world. It's a place which the Costa still is, but certainly used to be in its prime where you could really flash your wealth and driving a Ferrari one day and a Lamborghini the next day and not apparently going to work doesn't really raise an eyebrow. Mm. There's vast amounts of money. It wouldn't be a place I would consider somewhere I'd like to be or it's it's just not for me. I don't like those places. I've sat around Porta Banus and watched the kind of people that it can attract and Monaco and Saint-Tropez and various places like this. I just find it crass, but maybe in a way I know where some of that wealth is coming from and the kind of misery that many people have suffered for, for, for some to line their pockets. But um, the UAE definitely is a hedonistic playground for the wealthy and they've certainly attracted money from certain quarters. If you invest in a company in the UAE and you allow an Emirati hold 51% of that company, you can get a residential visa. Now, London for years, I think it's changing or has possibly changed now, allowed the Russian oligarchs in if they spent two million. Mm -hmm. So we can't really look down our noses on them that much. But like the UAE have cooperated somewhat. Daniel Kinahan's business partners, one guy is called Ridwan Taji. He's currently on trial in the Netherlands for a string of gangland murders. He's an extremely dangerous character who was a street dealer and within 10, 15 years became a billionaire. But he is has been threatening the very foundations of the Netherlands, of the state of the Netherlands. He has is suspected of being behind the murder of a state the witness of, uh, sorry, the brother of a state witness of a criminal lawyer. He has threatened the president. He has, is believed to be behind um, the murder of a journalist there. All the foundations of the state have been threatened by this guy. He was sent back to the Netherlands by the UAE because he was there on a false passport. Rafael Imperiale, the head of the Camorra Mafia, another business partner of Kinahan, has just recently been sent back to Naples. But he was on the run in the UAE because he had been convicted of a crime and given eight years in prison. So they're in a very different place than Daniel Kinahan, who, as his supporters have always said, and which is true, has no convictions. And Daniel Kinahan has been living in the Emirates openly as Daniel Kinahan, you know. Right. We know from the sanctions that him and all his cohorts hold a number of false passports and often travel under different names, but he's been living openly there. So it's been a bit of a different, difficult situation. 
for the Emirates in a way. Now, he's been there a long time and I do know that they have been pushing to have him sent back, but they just haven't cooperated with him. I don't really have the answers to that, but I can see kind of slightly two blurred sides of it with Kinahan. His his extradition, his exit from the country isn't quite as simple as others. And also, as you know, he has been ambitiously sports washing his reputation and he has been aided and abetted by that through boxing mm. and very se- senior individuals in boxing have, um, you know, have said he's he's a great guy and there's nothing to see here. And I think he's brought and certainly the companies around him have brought a huge amount of sports money into Dubai. And really at the heart of it all is the money. And that's why things live or die in that world since the sanctions have come in, which will ultimately strangle the Kinahans financially. It's been like rats from a sinking ship. People have been turning on them left, right and centre, mm. both openly and privately, and have been removing themselves from them. And I think ultimately, as they try and push further into the Gulf and try and find another safe haven with those sanctions and with the struggles they'll have to keep their ship afloat, they mightn't be so welcome. Well, let's go back to the change there that you mentioned at the top, because certainly when you go back to Ireland and you visit and you see that shift in attitude towards drug taking, it's really visible. It's really in your face that what was once taboo is Mm. no longer. I listened to one of my favorite episodes of your podcast. I can't remember the gentleman you had on, but he really explained really well that if people could understand that the person that thinks, oh, well, I only spend a very small amount of my income on drugs every second weekend, that they don't realize that that group of people is the biggest funder of the Kinahan family of this kind of crime. Not the strung out person who's really fallen through the cracks of society. So in so many ways, the shift, as you described, in attitude and in the amount of drugs being taken by regular people occupying office jobs is to have culpability in the rise of these crime gangs. Like most definitely. And from my experience, people taking heroin are by and large ashamed of that there is a shame attached to it Mm. they do it in secret they don't kind of go into a pub and announce it with cocaine it's different and cocaine has always been cool since it you know since it's advent in miami back whenever in the Mm -hmm. 60s or 70s but it's always had this cool image attached to it and there's this kind of disconnect with people when it comes to cocaine educated middle class people who will go to organic butchers to buy their meat, who will, you know, want to know which farm their eggs came from. And yet they will take cocaine without considering for a second where it's come from or who has suffered in its journey from Colombia Venezuela or wherever it's originated up their nose. They they just, there is this absolute disconnect. And I think that it's funny, you know, I often think back to when I was younger, certainly, and the generations that have gone before this one, 
and the drink driving situation in Ireland. And like people used to just drink drive absolutely all the time. 100%. Um, yeah. They did. I mean, people used to say they drove better with a few jars on board. Mm. And like that became a very shameful thing to do because of a very successful ad campaign run by mothers of, of um, young people who had been killed on the roads by drunk drivers. And it was a, a marketing campaign that just hit the right note. And whether it's that has been a consistency thing and human beings need to hear the same message over and over again before it goes into their heads. But that culture has changed completely here in Ireland. I just don't know very many people who would get in behind the wheel of a car, even with one or two drinks yeah, alone, you know, having been out for the night. And that's a fact. And maybe there is some marketing people out there who could find the right message with cocaine. You know, are we sympathetic to Colombian farmers? Probably not. We're too far away from them. But there are incidents that happen nearer to our own sort of sense of self that we could be alerted to are a direct result of that weekend spend on a couple of lines, you know. It's maybe slightly naive to suggest that a marketing campaign could could curb the desire for coke but and it's by the way it's not only Ireland of course it's it's across Europe I mean Europe is being flooded with cocaine and and reports have been out in recent years suggesting that there's a tsunami of it coming for us we're not even at saturation point yet I mean it's bleak uh, isn't it? It, it? it is. It isn't. I don't think it's glib to say, is there a marketing campaign when mm. I'm talking to somebody who has, you know, personalized what is a situation that's very much othered by these first world countries, by even the people taking the drugs on a recreational basis. Mm. It's over there. It's gangland. It's the underclass. It's on the outskirts of town. It's the wrong side of the tracks. You, Nicola, have better than anyone I know around me or near me brought it to the individual uh, in the way you have told your story, the witness book, the podcast that accompanies it. It's certainly you had to have in mind that if I can tell the story of a real human being, maybe that can impact people in a bigger way than just seeing it on the news the whole time. Was that in your mind? Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, Joey O'Callaghan, who's the subject of that podcast and the book, was somebody who I met. You know, people always say to you, like, uh, you know, criminals, as if they're just all a big block of people but they're, of course they're all individuals and I've met many of them over my years and I've liked many of them some of them who've been quite high up in the criminal underworld they just are people largely who have a story to tell most of them have a reason to be where they are most of them are from communities which are just underprivileged let's be frank and that's that's the case and you know, younger people are constantly being drawn into these drug gangs and some people have a tendency just to, to, you know, to paint them all with a brush of being scumbags or being, you know, this sort of language. But I've always found really good human beings within that world and people who are trapped 
and don't see a way out. And maybe we as a society aren't giving them a way out or maybe we're not totally understanding the problems they have and the enormity of trying to get out of it. And you see with Joey, his story is unique. He took a job on a milk float. He didn't realise the uh, milkman was actually also delivering heroin along with the bottles of milk. And he was lured and groomed into that world. And um, because he didn't see a way out, he got deeper and deeper into it and it almost destroyed his life. But I think at his heart was strong moral values and a belief, a simple black and white belief in right and wrong. Hmm. And he did the right thing eventually. And he 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 was a witness essentially to a murder. He went state witness. He gave evidence and his evidence jailed two very significant gangland characters who are still in jail, by the way. And I don't know whether it's recognised, but had Joey not done what he did, the damage they would have caused onwards through society and with others. You know, he saved a lot of people doing what he did. So you find really good people there. And I think to understand it and not to just whitewash everything is happening in, in, you know, crime, black spot communities. We have to go into those communities and find the stories and see what these people have to say and, and why they. And how they up, got there. How they got there. exactly, yeah. And how they got there is all our responsibility. It is all our responsibility because for years, you know, when you talk about the Kinnahans and I have detailed that in the in the book Clash of the Clans, that was released last year mm-hmm. and it goes back to where the Kinnahans came from. And in doing that, I kind of tried to go back a little bit into the social history of Dublin and there was a joining of a number of gangs from across Dublin, the north side and the south side under the stewardship of Christy Kinahan Sr., Daniel's father. They came together with ambitions to be wholesalers, to move to Spain, to graduation school and to live it up. But they all came from communities when if you looked at them and dismantled those communities, they were all forgotten. I mean, in around the Dublin 8 area, there used to be a load of work for people in you know, in the clothing industry, there were factories, there was all sorts of jobs and they were proud people who went to work and brought home a wage. They mightn't have brought much home, but they brought home enough to put food on their table. And those jobs were removed and there was nothing replaced uh, for them. Even I think, you know, an iconic building in Dublin is the Ivy Market. Mm -hmm. And that was given, gifted by the Guinness family to the street traders to give them a bit of shelter while they were out trying to sell secondhand clothes to feed their families on the streets and, you know, they had their little rag stalls or whatever. And that building was was built for them. And then it was bought by a developer and it's been left idle. There's trees growing through it now. And I think it's an iconic building image of, you know, the wrongs we did too. everybody, you know, the, yeah. the planning problems, all of that is all creates this tapestry, this place where these people come from, where they see no, you know, they don't see options for themselves. And that's coming from this country. And we are a very privileged and rich country. I remember one point speaking to a, I called him a Kinahan soldier. He would have been a a drug dealer that came up under Freddie Thompson, who worked the landings of a particular flat complex, who got very, very wealthy, who you know, was very immersed in that world. 
And when I brought him back to his own childhood, he had come from a family with both parents being alcoholics and the kids were out all day on in the flats. They were not the type of kids that had playdates or could sure. bring people home to their house at night uh, to watch a movie. They weren't kids that were given doctor's play sets when they were growing up and asked by everybody what they want to be when they leave school. And he told me very definitively that when he was a young teenager, he saw two options for himself. One option was to become a drug addict and the other was to become a drug dealer. And I thought that was really sad, you know, that they weren't his only options, but that's what he saw. Mm. And he was lost somewhere in the education system, you know, between social services, whatever. Kids fall through the cracks all the time. And that's our responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Nicola, you've covered an awful lot in that in that one answer. And it does kind of shake you a little bit when you're when you're kind of moving through. And as so much of your work does, it kind of rattles you out of the idea that, oh, this is just going to happen and this is how it happens. And sure, mm. there it is. And that's that's the reality, which can often be, you know, not just an Irish thing, just a kind of a, a way that the first world deals with um, uncomfortable truths but so many people don't think for a moment well maybe I can get involved there maybe I can you know do something your first introduction to this and your like look it's people are going to struggle to understand how and why you choose to go down this path with your journalistic career can you do you trace that back yourself or does do you as years go by find different reasons as to why and how you got here? Yeah, 100%. Look, we all evolve, I suppose, in our careers. And I'm talking to you now in a way more mature manner than I would have when I started out as a crime journalist. Mm. You know, when I started out as a crime journalist, I was chasing the headlines, chasing the front pages. That's the way it was, chasing the big stories, wanting to be on all the, the, the big ones. Um, yeah, it's you and not, yeah, and not getting further than those headlines and stuff. You know what I mean? Not really delving into why mm. these people were what they were, or why we reacted to them the way we did. And I suppose, yeah, you just as you grow a little bit, as you mature somewhat. I'm 47 now, so I've been at it a long time. Mm-hmm. I did a, a two-year course after school and was working from 19. I know nowadays everyone does their masters and their degrees and all that, but that's the way it was when I started out and you were straight into a newsroom. So, you know, I would have been very immature. So was that the Southside News or the Evening Press? Yeah, the yeah. South South News or Southside News was my first port of call. And they were great places to start your journalism because you got to know wherever that local area was. You were covering the local courts, the local councils. Of course, over my time, the guards I would have met in the local courts, they kind of went up the career ladder too and ended up maybe in charge of a particular unit or whatever. And we would have had a good trusting relationship from way back. And same with the councillors. Many of them became TDs and, you know, you could have gone to them quicker than maybe somebody you didn't know. 
But so it was great training ground. But yeah, for years, that's the way it was. And of course, journalism has evolved too, Charlotte, and you know yourself. We're now broadcasting, we're mm. we're talking, we're not just words on a page. And um, I think that has made it. I love podcasting because I think you can bring a little bit more of yourself into it, especially in my journalism. It can seem the written word is very cold. Yeah, it's a bit blunt at times. Yeah, it's very blunt, certainly in a newspaper. I mean, you can explore things more in a book format, but uh, we can't do too many of them. But um, yeah, the, the kind of the broadcast, the podcasting, the documentary brings it more alive and you can be a little bit warmer, I think. Mm to the subject matter. Well, what would you say then, if you mentioned training ground, what would you say is the skill that you picked up early on that would stand to you later when you're finding yourself approaching people who other people would just never approach, wouldn't dream of or would would back away from or cross the road from? Mm. That talent or that skill that you developed is it something that you consciously worked on because it's ultimately winning trust, isn't it? Well, I suppose it's communication, isn't it? Being able to communicate with people and um, being able to sit down on a pavement with somebody who's homeless and talk to them at the same level as them or being able to go into a room and, you know, have chit-chat with the Taoiseach. It's yeah. just an ability to engage with your, your your subject matter, whoever that is and on whatever level it is. And that actually, funny enough, is something I slightly worry about now when I see younger journalists coming in and they're stuck to computers and they're, you know, everything is done. Via text. Yeah. Yeah. They're texting one another across newsrooms. <laughs> People are emailing me across the newsroom and I can see them. Yeah. And I don't like that at all. And I think that that is something that... I think younger journalists have to be encouraged to go out and and to attend events and to speak to people because that really will stand to you if you can turn around and, you know, you need to talk to people. But but sure, yeah, I I, I know what you mean, but so much of communication is done that way that Mm. I'd imagine now those same journalists are texting or WhatsApping the people that you were trying to win the trust of or communicate with. And that there's nearly another form of communication that needs to be developed there in the same way as I'm teaching my son at the moment how not mm. to come on too strong in the WhatsApp group that he's in with the other 11 year olds at school. Oh, gotcha. It's yeah. um, it's a rapidly changing world. But at the at the centre of it is, like you say, sitting on the curb and talking mm. to somebody who might necessarily want to be talked to. Do you remember the earliest version of yourself and doing that do you what's your first memory of your heart in your mouth say talking to somebody um i don't know whether i have a distinct first memory like that i just remember it being really exciting talking to people who weren't like me and who didn't have the same upbringing as me and i remember just finding it really intriguing to find things out about them. And I've always kind of, (laughs) I always like when they kind of get on with me or when I make them laugh or when we make a connection Mm. and we're so different, you know, and we come from such different places and yet human beings can still find find connections. Yeah, Yeah, you know, and um, 
I think that always was a challenge to me. I always definitely found that as a challenge. And I, I used to like talking to people. Look, I'm sure I liked a little whiff of the danger as well. There's no doubt about it. Friends of mine would say I'm a bit odd. But yeah, you know, you go along to these crazy. I've been in crazy situations. Um, But you'd find yourself in a car park somewhere talking to somebody who is, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't be. And then actually finding them a bit of gas crack and walking away and having to pinch myself and remind myself that they are capable of um, horrendous things. But I don't know, human beings just interest me, their makeup. And um, I think as long as I still have an interest in that, I'll still have an interest in the job. So as I said, there's an awful lot more to get into here, including witness the Joey O'Callaghan story. I had so many questions I wanted to ask her about that, but on the one hand, I didn't want to ruin the experience of listening to her podcast, which I recommend you do, or listening to the audiobook of The Witness, which obviously came out in 2020. But the audiobook is something that I've devoured having read the book, and it, it alongside the podcast is something else. Why not come over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and enjoy that 15% discount that I've arranged for you from now through the month of May. It would really help us to continue making the show, make the show better, get bigger guests, bigger episodes, do more research and spend more time making this show weekly for you. If you like the show, that's the only way to keep it, to keep it alive. So come on over patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad for the second half of the Nicola Talent interview. And of course, you'll get bonus content every single week in all three of our weekly episodes and access to the vault. Brian Connolly is on sound. Tina and Mikey make it all possible. And uh, I'll talk to you on Tuesday with Sonia once I've done the Vitality 10,000 in London. If you're if you're joining us uh, at that, come on over to Strava.com to find out where we're going to meet for a drink afterwards.